Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You've got me, Alina, and I'm flying solo today and it's great because we're doing a subject I like. So I don't mind flying solo for this one. With me today is David Joseph, who's King's Counsel for the Americans. That's a senior trial lawyer. He's also a historian who's here to talk us about his first book, Bergenland, Village Secrets and the First Tremors of the Holocaust. Welcome, David. Very, very nice to be here. I'm really, really excited about this. We've been chatting quite a long time. Of course, it's me. So we've been chatting just before we started to record. And we've got questions that I'm just going to start randomly, not randomly inserting, obviously, but we're going to uh, develop some of the questions we've got in front of us anyway. But let's talk a little bit about the book, because, you know, why Bergenland? Why? Where does this come from? So, um, well, Bergenland, first of all, is it's a an area of Austria. Um, it's about 100 kilometers south of Vienna, the capital. Um, it is intensely beautiful countryside. Um, think of the most uh, beautiful countryside imaginable with vineyards and sunflowers, uh, shimmering lakes in the distance. Um, historical castles, and above all, this was an area of Austria that was completely owned and dominated by the principal European aristocratic family of the time, the Esterhazes, the Esterhazy princes. These were fabulously wealthy uh, aristocrats, and um, they uh, had an extraordinary extraordinarily powerful role within the Habsburg Empire. But um, first and foremost, they were at the absolute front and center of the drive to get the Turks out of that part of Europe. And so when the Turks arrived at the gates of Vienna, who was it who led the army to defeat the Turks? Um, It was the Esterhazy princes. And when they retook Budapest, who was it that uh, led that fight, and again, it was the Esterhazy princes. And for each battle where they defeated the Turks, their titles, their aristocratic titles, magnified, and the Habsburg uh, emperors uh, gave them more and more land, and they built more and more castles. And all of this required a simply extraordinary amount of money. And uh, even their fabulous wealth was not up to this kind of task. And so at some stage, in the 1600s, the Estazi princes looked to borrow money, and they borrowed money from one of the richest bankers in Europe at the time, who was called Samson Wertheimer, uh, himself a, a very rich banker. And um, the prince was incredibly grateful for all this and said, well, you know, what can I do in return for you? You know, you have been so kind helping me out. And uh, Wertheimer said, Look, you have to repay the money, but there's only one thing I ask in return, and that is a charter of protection for Jews to live in this part of the Habsburg Empire. And so a 
Charter of Protection, it's called a Schutzbrief in German, was drawn up. And it is the most extraordinary document. It comes from about 1690. And it is effectively about the very first charter which expresses anything remotely according to full civil rights for Jewish people living in that part of Europe. It's a very forward-thinking liberal document. And that was the basis for the establishment of the Jewish communities in this part of the world. And they lived a very, very free life uh, under the protection of the Estahazes in seven particular villages. And my mother's family came from one of those villages. And so that really is the start of the story. It's a wonderful um, uh, uh, insight, if you like, uh, to the Jewish experience in Central Europe, because it shows uh, a 300-year period, an uninterrupted period of history, where Jews were living under very considerable local protection with enhanced civil rights. But the second, the very second, uh, that the Nazis rolled over the borders, then all hell breaks loose. And it turns out that their own fellow villagers really never liked them very much in the first place. Well, talk us through a little bit what life was like, like, if, well, before the Nazis walk into into Austria. What was it like? You so described was, a little bit. So, so uh, it's, it's a, sorry to interrupt you. So it's a very um, interesting and nuanced picture because the Charter of Protection, the Schutzbrief, identified things that Jews could do and also held back certain reservations of things that Jews couldn't do. So the Jews were not allowed to own farmland and they were not allowed to own certain parts of land, but they were allowed to engage in all manner of trades. And so the the Jews of that particular um, uh, area of Austria, the Bergenland, essentially were tradespeople. They were innkeepers. They were shopkeepers. Um, my family, they were, broadly speaking, shopkeepers, uh, haberdashery and so on and so forth. Um, many others ran uh, wine businesses, wine merchants. All the inns and all the hotels were owned by the Jews. But the farming was held in the hands of the non-Jews, the, 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 the Catholic community. And so this is how the, 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 they, they, they interacted, they rubbed shoulders, they lived side by side, but they had very, very different economic pursuits. Um, the, so to give you an idea, the, the particular village that, that my mother's family came from is called Lachenbach. And um, the total population of Lachenbach was hovering, let's say, somewhere between eight hundred and a thousand people. These are small villages. But the population was almost exactly 50% Catholic and 50% Jewish. And it was even to the point where there was a sort of an invisible line on the main street, uh, 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 which was called Bergasse, which means um, mountain street or hill street. There's almost an invisible line in Bergasse, uh, beneath which the Jews could live and above which the Catholics would live. So, yes, they are all hugger-mugger together in a small village, but they're not really together. They're not really integrated. And, of course, that um, together but separate, together but other, forms one of the key 
um, themes of the entire book. So I'm just curious, when we talk about integration, did the Jewish population in the region speak Austrian or did they speak, for example, Hebrew or Yiddish? So um, the the answer uh, to that is um, uh, a little bit uh, of uh, Hebrew would have been um, uh, spoken in the religious community, but amongst themselves, they would have all spoken Austrian. Now, there were good reasons for this, um, partly because they were extremely proud Austrians, and they all fought in for the Austrians in the First World War, and indeed my uh, great-grandfather fought for the Austrians in the First World War, and uh, likewise uh, my uh, grandfather. But um, they were very proud. Uh, they had incredibly um, sort of, you know, Austrian names. So my grandmother's uh, name was Teresa, which is not an incredibly Jewish name. Uh, but of course, it comes from Maria Teresa, who was the empress uh, of, 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 of Austria. Also, by the way, an incredible anti-Semite. But anyway, we'll leave that one to, to, to one side. So they would have spoken German amongst themselves. It was also, Burgenland is border country. And so the Esterhazes were first and foremost Hungarian princes. And this land, it, it flowed backwards and forwards on the Austria or the Hungarian side of the border. So everyone at school would have learned Austrian, uh, German, and I apologize, and, and Hungarian. You had to speak that. But you asked me about Yiddish. That was not a vernacular in this part of the world. That was something which is um, much, much uh, uh, more common in parts of Poland, parts of Russia, part of settlement, and so on and so forth. Uh, and also, of course, uh, in parts of the Habsburg Empire, like you know Galicia, um, you know today, present day uh, Lviv, uh, that these were all basically Krakow, Lviv, and so on. These were Yiddish-speaking places. This was not the same in Austria. They did not speak Yiddish. It's really interesting because that's what I was thinking about all of those areas. Because from my experience of the history that I've been working on, it's predominantly uh, Yiddish, especially if people didn't want to sort of integrate within society. That's the language they use between each other. And when they'd end up in, for example, Auschwitz or other concentration camps, they would have the one common thing, which is Yiddish, to be able to speak amongst each other. Because, for example, not everybody was uh, speaking French or Polish or Greek, for example, unless, of course, you're from Rhodes, because we did a podcast a couple of uh, months ago where the Rhodes Jews didn't speak any of it, which made it even more complicated. So I just I just found that quite interesting uh, as that. So so, the, there's also one other very, very um, interesting sort of footnote to this, which is that um, one of the reasons um, why you know, this is such a strong uh, German speaking community is from the 1780s, uh, under the time of the Emperor Joseph II, who was considered to be one of the most enlightened of all of the European rulers, he um, made it uh, clear through legislation that um, Yiddish was abolished as a, as a local language, and you had to speak German, and you had to go to a school in which German was taught. And so uh, Yiddish was really sort of completely wiped off the um, 
the local vernacular. That's just not what people spoke. They spoke either uh, Hebrew, uh, for example, in a synagogue context or a Hebrew school context, um, or they spoke um, German. We have a lot of questions to go through, but I don't think we're going to go through all of them because I want our guests to be wanting to know more. So we're only going to touch on a couple of these. Obviously, the next stage of this story moves on to Austria being occupied. How does that affect the region? What happens? So in some ways, this is um, one of the more shocking parts of the whole story that I've written about. And it touches on one of the absolute raw nerves that passes through quite a lot of this book. Um, Most of uh, the listeners will know that um, in March 1938, Hitler invaded Austria. He did so um, announcing the Anschluss, the Union of Austria and Germany. He did that um, and uh, 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 he announced it first by radio and then the tanks rolled over the border on the 12th of March. In fact, actually, there was a whole problem with that because uh, the tanks rolled and then they stopped rolling because there was some kind of uh, ridiculous mechanical failure at the border. And so all of these German tanks, so you think of sort of, you know, uh, German, you think German, uh, and then you say efficiency, but uh, it really wasn't like that. So um, a little <laughs> like we've seen with, with the Russian tanks stalled outside Kiev, the, the, the German tanks rolled and then they stopped. And But that did not stop the Austrian local Nazis. So in the village that my mother came from, which is Lachenbach, that little area, there was a dreadfully awful evil man called Tobias Porci, who um, he was a member of the Nazi party, uh, like many, many Austrians were, but the Nazi party was um, actually made illegal uh, from 1936 uh, onwards. So, and, and many Austrians were put in prison uh, for being members of the uh, Nazi party. But one of the uh, uh, conditions that Hitler imposed on Austria through the meeting in the Berchtesgaden in February 1938, which was Austria's last ditch attempt to maintain some kind of independence, was you've got to free all of the Austrian Nazis from prison. So Tobias Porci from March, from February 1938 to March 1938, he got busy. And uh, he, of course, uh, was given, he was on the inside. He knew what was happening. And so he was ready for the announcement of the Anschluss on the 11th of March. Now, what I think people have to understand is this, that Lachenbach, which is this little, pretty little village. I mean, it is absolutely immaculately beautiful in the, in the middle of nowhere, frankly, 100 kilometers south of um, Vienna. Um, it was not invaded by Nazi troops. No. It was the local Austrian Nazi party that took over. And on the night of February the 11th, 1938, as soon as the second that, um, uh, that uh, the announcement is made on the radio, and probably sometime about 48 hours before any German tanks really rolled over the border. Um, The second that the announcement was made to the Anschluss, it was the local villagers who then unfurled the swastika from all of the houses occupied by non-Jews. So just imagine this little village, and there's my family, and they were actually coming out of synagogue because it's a Friday night when traditionally have, you know, prayers to welcome in the Sabbath. So you just imagine it, they're coming out of synagogue, 
And they turned the corner from the synagogue, which is on Temple Gaza, and they turned the corner into Berg Gaza. And suddenly every other house has got a swastika, unfelt, not, you know, like, you know, for example, we've just had the coronation of the king, and sometimes people have got a little plastic Union Jack. These were proper heavy, you know, flags from flagpoles. This must have taken weeks to prepare. And the shock and the disgust that you have. And one of the reasons why I say it's a a raw nerve through this book is because Austria has never really owned up to this history. Austria has never really owned up to it. They've always said, oh, but we were the victims. We were invaded. It all happened to us. And it's just not true. You did it to yourselves. There was a recent exhibition done on Auschwitz in, uh, oh, it might have been a V, I have no idea, somewhere in Austria. And they completely changed the narrative and they wrote, we were the first real true victims of Nazism. I'm like, really? Really? You want to start that game? Well, because, it, and it was a, it was, I mean, uh, the, immediate, the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, uh, a, a, as everybody knows, that the 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 power blocks were reshaping, and it's quite clear that there would be a power block of Russia and a power block of the West. And so, in essence, um, it was the Western allies that gave Austria the victim status. It said, "Look, if it makes you feel better, you can be the victim, but just can you be sort of our victim, so that you kind of side with us." and not the Russians. Um, and it was um, a sort of a little uh, sweetener for them. Um, I don't actually think it helped very, very much because the Austrians, um, after the war, felt very, very bitterly uh, towards the Americans as well. Yeah, they also don't want to, don't want to accept how many uh, Austrians were uh, in concentration camps, meaning concentration camp guards themselves. An extraordinary, for a little country, mm. Extraordinary proportion of all the camp commandants were Austrians. I have um, come on to Eichmann probably a little bit later as well. We we will do. There's uh, I just want to add one more thing. There's one of my uh, prisoners that uh, that I was working on. He vividly remembers how there was an Austrian guard who was an older man, and he says, "Oh, you know, he felt so sorry for me. I was he was only 17 years old. He's oh, he felt so sorry for me because he had children my age back at home. This Austrian guy, and I was like, oh my god, okay, yeah." There's feeling sorry and there's feeling sorry, yes. Exactly. It's uh, enough. Okay, no, no, no. I'm not going to start because we can go on on about this for ages. Let's uh, let's move on to the next question. So after this, we move on to the Vienna pogrom. Tell us a little bit about what the Vienna pogrom was. How does that all kind of work its way into the story? So, um, well, first of all, the... the, So, um, just winding back a tiny little bit. So the significance of the Bergenland, as I already said, these were the first Jews to be granted these civil rights in, in pretty much all of Central Europe. And then they are also the first Jews to be rounded up and deported. So it is a an extraordinary bookend story of the Jewish experience in that part of the world. And at this point in 1938, um, it, 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 the, the, the idea that Eichmann had come up with was still not the extermination of the Jews. That came later uh, in uh, in degrees, of course, as we know, first, you know, death by shooting and then gassing and so on and so forth. Um, but the idea of the deportation at that point in 1938 was, we'll take them out of the Bergenland 
And um, the, uh, the underlying idea for that was that um, the Austrian people wanted to give Hitler a birthday present for April 1938. And they, what do you give the man who's got everything? And so they gave him a present, which was the elimination of the Jewish communities in the Burgenland. And that was his birthday present in April 1938. And Happy birthday, so, Hitler. Here you go. Here's some expulsion so, of Jews. So the, the, the Jews of the Burgenland, and my family included, had to, they had to be kicked out by the 20th of April 1938. That was the key cutoff date. And where were they kicked out to? They were kicked off into Vienna. Um, because there was pretty much nowhere else you could go. And the idea was that they wouldn't stay long there because they would then be deported elsewhere. And so the idea that Eichmann and Porchy had come up with was that you would slowly but surely declare parts of the Reich uh, what they called Judenrein, free, free of Jews. And so the Burgenland was the first area to be declared uh, Judenrein. And uh, there were various speeches given about this, and also incredible remarks made um, in, in, in sort of high, up, high echelon meetings where uh, Goering is smashing his fist on the table and says, I don't understand it. We've been in power for all these years. We've not got rid of our German Jews. And this man, Eichmann, he comes in and he's done it like this. You should be ashamed of yourselves. All day long, you know, and they were screaming and shouting about this. But so the point about the Burgenland is it is a real significance so they are then taken into vienna and what do they find when they get there so as you uh i'm i'm sure a lot of your listeners will know an enormous amount of attention has been placed on the uh, events of november 38 kristallnacht it has become completely totemic in our understanding of anti-semitism and what happened in the war but the austrians had their run at this in March and April 1938. This is a full six, seven, eight months before uh, Germany really got going. And it was, it can only really be described as an orgy of anti-Semitism that was completely and utterly out of control that took place over a period of something like four to six weeks with uh, uh, Viennese, you know, um, just baying for blood in the streets. Uh, there are rabbis on their knees scrubbing uh, pavement with acid. Uh, there are all the signs in the shops that we've seen, the broken glass that we find familiar with Kristallnacht. And so, in fact, actually, when it comes to Kristallnacht, uh, the, 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 the Viennese had pretty much already sated themselves. There was that what was left to destroy was the synagogues, but pretty much everything else had been absolutely wiped out in this orgy of violence. Um, and um, there was uh, a very um, big um, exhibition which was put on as part and parcel of this sort of whipping up of anti-Semitic fervor. And it was called The Wandering Jew. And if you see a poster of this, uh, the wandering Jew, he has this huge hook nose. He looks like a, a chassid. He's got these great big curl, you know, side lock curls and his, uh, around his ears. 
and he looks just dreadful. I think he's got even crooked fingernails. I mean, you, you don't want to meet the wandering Jew on this poster. He looks like a pretty awful person. And they they put these two huge banners. I mean, they must be 30, 40 foot long on uh, uh, draped down the columns of the train station, um, which was in the second district, which is the main Jewish district of uh, of Vienna. And um, and Goering came to give to give a speech there, effectively to open this conference, say do a, exhibition, say, "Ha, oh, you know, what a wonderful show we're putting on for you, you know, to show all the great characteristics of the Jew." The point about that railway station is that this is the railway station where all the Polish Jews, the Galicianas, and so on, would arrive into Vienna, um, looking for work, looking for anything, you know, for shelter. And so it's all highly symbolic. And it was whipped up at every single level, at an emotional level, uh, on a verbal level, and a physical level of assault. And I think at that stage, people understood they had to leave. Um, but as I think we're going to get on to, there was nowhere to go. What happened to your family's businesses when they left, before they headed to Vienna, just out of curiosity? So absolutely everything was taken. But to say that one sentence, everything was taken, does not even begin to do justice to the extraordinary scale of what happened. So I should have probably said one thing, which was a, a, a quite extraordinary um, exception to the general rule that prevailed all across Europe, is the Jews of the Bergenland, not only did they own their own businesses, they owned their own houses. And this was very, very uncommon in these small villages. Normally, you'd be a tenant and so on and so forth. And so if you were kicked out and you had to return the keys, okay, fine. You know, you don't live there anymore. But this was your house. And this was your business. And this is your uh, factory. And this is your warehouse with all of your goods. So what did they do? Uh, they decided that they had to take an inventory of every single household and every single business. And when I first went uh, to Eisenstadt, the provincial capital, to find the records, I said, by the way, these are my family names and da-da-da-da-da. I said, I have no idea if you've got any records, and so please forgive me if this is a wild goose chase. I'm so sorry. And the, the, the lady archivist there, who's a lady called Dr. Fertile, who's a most wonderful and kind and, and patient person, she said, no, 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 honestly, I understand exactly what you're after. Let, let me go and find it. So she then comes back, not with a file, a trolley of files. A trolley of files. And this is for one family in one village in the Borgenland. And they had identified... Every single item, every cooking spoon, every saucepan, and as it is written down, my two, my mother's two dolls. And that's they incredible. Ascribe a value to every single thing, except as the late and great Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said, they ascribed a value to everything except to human life itself. So my mother had two dolls, it turns out. One was worth 40 fennigs, 
and one was worth, must have been a slightly grander doll, and it was worth one Reichsmark. And they tot up all the total at the end of this thing. And it came to dot, 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 Reichsmark. And then they start the deductions. They say that 10% has to go to the SS. Uh, 10% has to go to the local fund for the... Uh, there was a sort of... Um, it was like a Hitler youth, but it was a sort of a local version of it. And 10% goes to that. And then they start all the deductions. And it came up with an incredibly small sum of money. I'm going to say, because I can't remember the exact number, but I'm going to say approximately 280 rice mark, a very, very small sum of money when they've done all the deductions. And they say, well, that sum of money has to can't go to my family. It goes to this particular bank account which has been established by Eichmann for the expulsion of Jews. So my family's property is taken. Some of it goes to the SS. Some of it goes to the local hit youth. And the rest of it goes to this bank account for their own expulsion, which they have to pay for themselves. And this is written down in excruciating detail, not by one clerk and not by two clerks, by hundreds of people. The level of participation is beyond anything that you and I could ever, ever have understood. And they're writing each other letters, uh, long letters with, um, they sign off saying, uh, you know, uh, holy German greetings or Heil Hitler. And, you know, they, they are they're in, they are in a complete zone here discussing the fate of the property of this family. And they cannot see that any single thing they are doing is remotely wrong. How pissed off did you get while doing that part of your research? It, I, I want to say very, but it goes deeper than that, because I think that that there are occasions where I felt, yeah, I can handle this. I, I know it's a difficult story. I know. And I, you know, I, I need to get to the next part of the story. And I felt sometimes as though I was very deliberately cutting off an emotional side to me because I felt to do this job professionally, to do it properly, I had to cut that off. And then sometimes it would just break through. And this was one of them. And let me just tell you this. So I did say to you that there was a balance owing of, of let's say, approximately 280 rice mark, which was paid into this bank account. But the story does not actually quite stop there. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
There then starts another round of correspondence, which is a little bit later. And so reading this, I was thinking, oh, cranky, you know, I thought they'd dealt with this. And why are they back on this subject now? And they say, it has now come to our attention that something else has happened. I'm thinking, oh, what's this else? Oh, dear God. He says that that my mother, who was, uh, everyone called her Judy, but her, her, her German name was Judith, Judith Lobel, L-O-B-L, Judith Lobel, um, uh, made a visit to a hospital, and they gave the address, um, where she had a prolonged stay. And um, this is between the dates of this and this and this. This is, the dates given were, let's just say for argument's sake, 1936. In other words, many, many, you know, years back. And there is an unpaid bill for the food she consumed during that hospital stay. And we need now to find um, Herr Lobel, which is my grandfather, Julia. We need to find um, Julia. Because, you know, um, we need to get him arrested for this unpaid bill. Now, there are two or three things here. The first thing is, and obviously it is completely ridiculous to uh, hound someone, having taken everything, then to say we now need, let's say, for argument's sake, the sum of 30 rice mark from them. Obviously, that is ridiculous. But it was just further. I mean, my family, they were just um, uh, extremely orthodox. Okay, they were ultra-Orthodox Jews. And um, for a very Orthodox Jew, there is no way that you would eat food in a Christian hospital. It's just completely out of the question uh, because of the issue of kashrut. And so they were being charged, and my grandfather was going to be arrested and no doubt taken to Dachau for something which literally could never have happened. And that was an occasion... When it was, it just got to me. I just thought, hang on a second, you are just sadistically torturing people with, 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 you're just finding ways to torture people mentally and physically uh, and so on. It, it's, it's a very, very particular type of evil. The people that can't see, I've been shaking my head the whole time because that's just so ridiculous. Every little tiny thing you could pick up at. I'm assuming they went back through various different records and hospital oh, stays yes, and yes. things. And, and there's, there's a particular official who was sent down from Vienna uh, to Lachenbach to find my grandfather, who by that time was on the run. And um, he writes, he's got a totally grumpy uh, letter. Um, and he say, I, I was dispatched to Lackenbach on such and such a day and uh, to find the whereabouts of Herr Lobel uh, in relation to this unpaid invoice now and what is going on. And uh, he and obviously he wasn't there because they'd been expelled from there. And I couldn't find him there. And um, he says that the total cost of my train ticket, which is, by the way, is enclosed in the letter, is let's say one rice mark and three fenix. Uh, this makes sure it is added to the bill that he owes. Did he had add his lunch bill in there as well? And More his or less. Bill? Exactly. Exactly. Jesus. It, it is a it's a, a a level of sadism and uh, and uh, bureaucracy. I think that I think I 
because I've seen these files, I'm 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 sure the only person alive who has seen these files, and it is it sheds a light as to what was happening in that time at that place. And obviously, it, that's not to say that Austria hasn't changed as a country. I'm not saying that Austria has greatly changed as a country, but I have exposed something which I think definitely needed to be exposed. No, I agree. I mean, the next thing we're going to touch on is uh, is Palestine. And a lot of our listeners probably don't even know what that is. And uh, basically, people escaping to Palestine to get away. Talk us through a little bit what happens uh, with your family on that. So I, I need to uh, break the story out into, into two parts, because I think it is very important. Um, there were very, very few places for Jews to go at that time. And there was a, a very enlightened and humanitarian and generous program, which was uh, created by the British government at the time, which is the kinder transport for young children, uh, largely unaccompanied young children without their parents to be sent on trains from Austria and from Germany to arrive in England and then to be taken care of uh, by foster families. And my mother was saved in that way. And so, you know, everything else I say in answer to your question, we need to temper by reference to that. Um, I have to be very thankful, and I am thankful. I'm very, very proud that the British did that, uh, and they rescued 10,000 young children in that way, and that was a very enlightened thing to do. But I think what shocked me when I uh, was researching all this is because a very significant part of my family were um, looking to get to Palestine it, very, very largely because they did not meet the incredibly strict age re restrictions of the kinder transport program. And so if you were over and above, let's say, the age of 16 or 14, I can't remember what it was, but if you were above that age, you couldn't get into the kinder transport scheme. So you had to find another place to go. And realistically, the only other place that Jews could get to with, with in any form of numbers or any form of realism was Palestine. Palestine at that time was under a, a League of Nations mandate. So the League of Nations being the predecessor to the United Nations. And the 1922 mandate made it clear that Britain's international law obligation was to facilitate the immigration of Jews into Palestine. But step by step, um, Britain abandoned that legal promise, legal obligation, and then abrogated it altogether. And then, as I found out shockingly in the book, uh, not only um, did they just abrogate it and stop uh, uh, Jews getting to Palestine by shutting the borders, they actually behaved really very badly uh, by uh, trying to cut off all of the boats which would get to the Black Sea and then into the Mediterranean pounding them. Uh, many boats sank as a result. They imprisoned uh, people who got to Palestine, including my grandfather. Uh, they behaved very, very badly. And some of the records I found, you know, you asked me a question a moment ago. You said, you know, how, how cross were you when you found this out? I was very, I was cross, but I was also ashamed. You know, as a very proud Brit, someone who's in enjoyed so much and being fortunate to get so much from this country you just 
I hadn't seen that dark side before. And it was very, very painful, actually. And I think it was born partly out of a pragmatism because they just were so desperate not to offend the Arab League. And partly out of, if I've got to be honest with you, just plain old anti-Semitism. We were talking a little bit about this before we started the podcast and I spoke about the book that I'd, uh, that I'd edited, talking about Poland's the government uh, in reaction to the Holocaust. And this is comes up a lot quite during this, where the Polish government or the consulates, let me rephrase that, the consulates are basically saying to Britain, going, right, look, we can give you loads of, you know, we've got a lot of Polish Jews that we need to get out. We need to get out of them. Romania, of Hungary, Portugal, Spain and whatnot. And they're saying, well, no, we've reached our quota for the year. Sorry, we, we can't we can't help you. Oh, but we can maybe take a rabbi or two or three. But then maybe we might need like 10 men between the ages of X and Y. And, and they were tr- very little, tiny little bits. And you've got thousands and thousands of refugees who are Jewish, Catholic, all across the board. And other countries are being asked to take these people in. And the first thing that they say to them is, We'll take your Catholics, but not your Jews. It is shocking. And um, you know, there is a story of my two great aunts, which I tell in the book, and um, uh, they are on one of the very, very biggest transports. It's called the Cladover Transport, and it was actually a convoy of three ships. Uh, and first of all, to go down the Danube and then into the Mediterranean and then on to Palestine. And um, the British government got wind of this. And, you know, I've seen the cables and the cables are just sickening. They were stopped at the Serbian-Romanian border, which the Britain, the British government encouraged. And then there's a question of, well, who would look after them? And at various points, uh, the Belgrade community started providing food parcels uh, to, you know, 1,000 and 200 cold, starving, you know, people aged between about 16 and 20. They're frightened, they're cold, they're starving. And their cables in the British government saying, you must, whatever happens, stop the Belgrade community from getting food to these people because it will only encourage more to come. And it's heartless, it's cruel, it is actually sadistic as well. And um, there was a methodology in all of this that um, I can only sum up in this way. I think people had just stopped seeing Jews as human beings. Oh, I, I agree. I'm sitting there thinking the tables are saying for the Brit, for the Belgradians to. I'm a little bit, I don't know what to say. My anger levels are going through the roof, just like when I was doing it. It's very hurtful. And um, the the twins, um, you know, uh, I've read incredibly enough. They wrote beautifully and they wrote to a cousin of mine in Switzerland. And those letters have survived. And, um, I've given a few talks, as you probably would imagine. And can you imagine? So this fellow is called Hugo Zussmann, which means Mr. Sweetman in uh, German. And um, 
someone came up to me at the end of one of these talks said, I, I'm, you know, the great nephew of uh, Hugo Zussman. So I think this book has opened up some incredibly powerful channels of memory for some pretty dreadful, dreadful facts, actually. And things that have been forgotten or not even spoken about. Not spoken about, exactly. And I mean, I know we haven't really talked about that in, in this podcast, but when that point about not spoken about, I need to just to emphasize, you know, for those listening, my family would not talk about this. Nobody would talk about this. No one at all would speak about this. And when I was a child, there was this photograph, beautiful photograph, sat at my mother, grandmother's bedside table. And my mother came from this tiny nucleus family. There was practically no one in my mother's family. And there was this photograph with all of these people. And if I ever asked a question about who are these people? He was like, no, 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 we don't speak about it. It's too upsetting. You mustn't say anything. You must never, ever raise this again. You mustn't talk about it. And there was a there was a blanket of silence. And I I think when the time came for me to write this and, and I was helped by a wonderful great uncle of mine, Max, I think there was a quite a big emotional outpouring on my part. I think I, it was, yeah, the dam had burst as it were. I cannot fully relate because obviously I'll never be able to fully relate, especially to do with families, but talking about family trauma uh, that I can relate to. So, for example, in our community, nobody spoke about what happened here either. And my grandfather fought in the Warsaw Uprising and he did some pretty insane things. And if you'd ask him to talk about it, like, what was your experience in the war? What do you remember from the Warsaw Uprising? What did you do? Oh, I just fought in the uprising. And that's it. They don't tell you anything else. They just don't talk about it. Memories are too painful. And I think that, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people felt guilt as well, that they, they had somehow survived and maybe they shouldn't have survived. Maybe they weren't worthy to survive. And I've I've heard some extraordinary stories, you know, many of which are not in the book. But, you know, for example, in Auschwitz, where people said, look, if any of us get out, if any of us survive this, you have to take the name of someone who died here so that 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 person somehow gets out of here through the taking of the name. I've heard that these are part and parcel of some very, very difficult stuff. People felt guilty. They they they. Maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I should somehow have died in the Warsaw Uprising. My best friend who was killed. People felt very guilty. Yeah, he lost uh, He lost two of his best friends in, in the uprising. Uh, not a story for the here now. Um, we'll talk about it afterwards. But there's so many. It, it's so complex. So complex. I've got testimonies from prisoners who uh, say they were talking to their friends, for example, and their friends will say, well, why are you why are you writing down your memoirs? Why are you writing down what happened? Yeah. What is the point? These people will never understand what we went through. Nobody will be able to ever understand it except for us. What's think, the point? I think, I think, I think uh, and I think also there became a point in time after the Second World War when it became 
sort of almost awkward to go back. And there is a line I've quoted in my book, which is, thank God we have the power to forget. Because if you can't forget, you could never, ever move on. And there's a lot of truth in that. I think that my own, um, you know, mother, my father, grandma, they all wanted to move on. They wanted to forge a new life. And, you know, obviously my mum's no longer alive, but but um, she was a very, very forward looking person. <laughs> yep. She did not spend one day of her life looking back. Um, but I, I just round this little discussion off with, with Eichmann. I was about to say, you've yes. taken the words right out yes. of my mouth. Because I was going to say. It's a, it's a perfect, perfect segue. So Eichmann, of course, is, is captured by Mossad in Argentina in 1961 after the most extraordinary sort of uh, strange, weird uh, kind of thing that only happens in real life and never happens in fiction. A very, very odd tip-off, which I have described in the book. And he's um, taken by Mossad to Israel. And this is 1961. It is 13 years after the State of Israel is created. It is um, 16 years after the liberation of the camps. It's also four years after the Kastner trial. And Rudolf Kastner, who is probably a name which is not so incredibly well known necessarily to the listeners, he was put on trial effectively of being accused of a collaborator with the Nazis. And he is part of the story of the elimination of the Hungarian Jews at the very end of the war. And I conclude in the book, and you'll see why, I think unfairly accused, um, but he was um, found guilty in the trial of first instance. And the collaboration that he was accused of was with, was with Eichmann. Okay. Um, and um, he is then murdered. He's assassinated in the streets. So great is the anger in Israel that there could be anyone that could have dealt with this evil maniac. He was killed in, in broad daylight in the streets of Tel Aviv. And then his case went on appeal whilst, you know, just after his assassination, and he's acquitted. And just, oh God. So posthumously is acquitted. And um, then Eichmann, of course, is captured. And it is a an extremely powerful moment in the early story, as it were, of the state of Israel. Because um, for those who have studied the Nuremberg trials, you will know that the Nuremberg trials are of quite a strange series of set pieces, is the honest truth where they have the higher echelons and then they have the second ranking echelons and they have got various different, very tightly framed charges and so forth. But then you get Eichmann, who is front and center of the entire story from 1938 all the way through to 1945. and. This becomes 
one of the themes of the Eichmann trial, which is it is a it is a an airing. It's a public airing. It was televised, by the way. It's the first major criminal trial ever to be televised. And there was a summary of it uh, every night on CBS in America. It was covered by, you know, Hannah Arendt uh, famously wrote a lot about Eichmann. And it was a study in evil. It was a study of what happened to the Jewish people. But it was actually also a study of each of the separate and complicated phases of the Holocaust in a way that none of the other trials do. And there is a, um, maybe I, you know, I, I don't know whether I spent um, too much of my time reading all those transcripts and so on, but I felt as though it was necessary to get under that skin a little bit and to say something that hadn't necessarily ever been said about Eichmann before. Well, if you work in law, as you do, you kind of get sucked into it, really, don't you? Well, the 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 the, the most common um, thesis, if you will, about Eichmann, and the most common phrase which is associated with him, uh, was a phrase which was taken out of Gideon Hausner, who was the uh, prosecutor. It was his opening, all right, and he uh, calls Eichmann the desk murderer. That's that really phrase, interesting. It is interesting. And that phrase was picked up by Hannah Arendt and she uses, she runs with this in some detail in her very, very, very well-known works on Eichmann. But the more I read, you know, because, you know, my uncle Max is, has this terrifying encounter with Eichmann, which I tell in the book and the more and then various of his sort of cohorts and so on and there's a, an incredible character called Willie Pearl who is one of life's most joyous people and one of the central figures of these rescue boats and he has plenty of terrifying encounters with Eichmann and the more I read and the more I got into it, I felt that the desk murderer label was not actually quite adequate because here was a man who cared just as much about the overall project of the murder of six million Jews as the fate of an individual. And extraordinarily enough, is part of his defense. He tells this story about Bertold Storfer. And this is told in his 1600-page interrogation, which goes on for very, very nearly a month. And Eichmann says, I couldn't possibly have hated the Jews or been an anti-Semite. Just let me tell you the story of Bertold Storfer. And in 1944, when the war is, let's say, not going incredibly well for Germany, Eichmann is sitting at his desk in Berlin, and he gets a call from the commandant of Auschwitz, and he says, look, Eichmann, I'm sorry to disturb you, but I've got this chap called Bertolt Storfer here, and he says he's like one of your close, close colleagues, and he's been working with you for years on the expulsion of the Jews from Europe, 
And he says he's here in Auschwitz by terrible, terrible, terrible mistake. And he says, if only I could speak to you, Eichmann, we get it all sorted out in a minute. And Eichmann says to him, no, 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 don't worry. I, I will, uh, let, me, let me see, I'll sort this out. And Eichmann leaves Berlin and he goes on a train to visit Auschwitz. He goes all the way from Berlin to Auschwitz in the summer of 44, when the war is completely spinning out of control. Height of the extermination of the Hungarian Jews. Correct. And he goes to Auschwitz and Bertolt Stauffer comes to him. And he says, ah, my dear Stauffer, what is there to do? There is nothing I can do for you. You're here now. And, well, first of all, this is an extraordinary defence to uh, all the accusations against him. But but Eichmann, he had one feature, which is he loved to spin, he did not spin a yarn, but he loved to talk. He was very, very garrulous. He says, there's nothing I can do for you. Don't forget, he is the architect of the entire extermination camp system. And he is saying that there's nothing he can do. He's in charge of the RHSA. Only ahead of him is Himmler. Storfer says, well, okay. You know. And he says, I will, but I will arrange for you special treatment. And Bertolt Storfer is then taken out and shot. <laughs> so this is a man who pays as much attention to the six million as he does to the one. Because Storfer probably knew too much. He knew too much of the inner workings of what Eichmann was. He'd worked with him for two, three, four years. He knew too much. He had to go. And um, as Eichmann famously said to Dieter Vischelny, who was um, one of his absolute closest, closest inner circle, when he found out that he and Vigelny and various others were on a an American war crimes list. He said to Vigelny, remember, nobody leaves the boat. Nobody gets out of the boat. And so I felt that desk murderer was not ultimately enough to describe this, this form of evil. Do you understand? It, it is a yeah. form of evil which... One label doesn't do it justice. He um, and you know, famously at the uh, Eichmann trial, you know, he was shown the communication um, when uh, he wrote. He said he 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 only had one regret, which is that they didn't kill more. Oh, what a charming, charming man who has probably the most screwed up idea of morality, and I, I just I can't. This this man makes my brain hurt. Well, I think that's right. And I think that, that you know, I think there were little elements of this sort of, um, how can I, I'm going to describe it maybe inaccurately, but it's like an intimate form of sadism that he, it's almost as though he enjoyed going to see Storfer and looking him in the eye for the last time. 
The point is, is he traveled all the way from Germany to, and it's not an easy journey at that time oh. with a war effort. And you've got trains coming in and out of Auschwitz yep. and you've got, you know, bombs and this and that. And God, no, he purposefully made that trip at that point, you know, D-Day's happening or happened, depending on when this happened. You know, there's so much going on. And he made, I just can't believe he did that. It's just, it's mind blowing. It, 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 it is mind blowing. and. um you know, uh, another little story which I tell, which is that, that the Wannsee Conference uh, uh, we all know about, you know, which is the sort of, if you like, the plan, the, the, the sort of the mechanics of the plan for the final solution and how it would be taken uh, into effect. The day before, Eichmann goes on a very special trip. He visits Theresienstadt. He goes, it's, it's almost like a hotel manager going on a little, you know, just to sort of acquaint himself with the, with the inner workings. And he makes a few little adjustments. So he passes an order, which is that all belongings are to be confiscated on arrival. <sighs> then he goes to the Vanze conference. This was a man completely obsessed with minutest detail of suffering. I think on that note, however long I'd like to still talk to you, probably I think we could do a six-part podcast. But I know there is so much more in your book, and I think people need to go out and buy themselves a copy because the one thing interesting thing you did say, there is no Auschwitz, which I commend you for, because all the time there is some form of Auschwitz in a, in a, in a book on the Holocaust. So this, for me, is impressive. So thank you for that. Yeah, well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and you are obviously so knowledgeable on the subject, and it makes a very, it makes for a very, very interesting discussion. And I, I think that there is a lot for the reader to see there. Some beautiful and powerful characters narrating, albeit a, a, a um, some difficult history. Do you remind our listeners the name of your book before we finish? Yes, so it is uh, Bergenland, Village Secrets and the First Tremors of the Holocaust. And you can hopefully buy it in a local bookshop or on Amazon. Well, perfect. We'll get that up in our bookstore anyway, uh, so people can get uh, a copy. You get a good slice, we get a good slice. Fantastic. I should have said that to begin with, actually. No, but that was very, very a... nice way of people buying it. And, uh, and, um, uh, and uh, obviously, a lot of people have contacted me afterwards with extraordinary personal angles and i'm more than more than happy to receive those kinds of messages well there you go i think it's time for another book <laughs> thank you very very much it's lovely speaking to you this afternoon thank you take care now our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster as a result we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.